Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. Our sermon text for this morning is is, uh, Hebrews 1, verse 4 through 2, verse 4, but I'm going to begin reading uh, in uh, verse 1, Hebrews 1, 1. Before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we have just sung that all we have is Christ and that He is our life. And I pray, Father, that You would, throughout our study of the book of Hebrews, teach us what that means, that we would see the glories of Jesus uh, in all of their splendor in a way that we have never seen them before. Open up our hearts Open up our minds that we would understand and receive what you have to say to us in your word. Uh, Be with me by your spirit that I would speak what is true. Be with each one of us that we would uh, be willing and ready and able to receive it uh, and to delight in it, to delight in who our Savior is. Teach us this morning by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews beginning with verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore... We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will.
Well, it's confession time. I was not a very good student in high school. When I was in class, I tended to drift off. Whether that was drifting off to sleep or drifting off into space as my body stayed present but my mind was somewhere else. And drifting off is easy. Some of you might have drifted off since the beginning of this sermon. It takes no effort to drift off. It simply happens. On the other hand, it takes effort to pay attention. The writer of Hebrews this morning is warning us not to drift away from the gospel. In fact, the whole book of Hebrews was written to say the gospel is the only thing that will get you through. Don't neglect the gospel. And so the whole book gives us reasons to persevere in the faith in the midst of trials. It's a little bit different from 1 Peter, which we just finished, which is also about trials, in that Hebrews has this one singular sustained argument from beginning to end about the the trustworthiness of God's message in Christ. Are you tempted to doubt the message of God in His Son? Read the book of Hebrews. And yet this morning, the writer addresses not not our temptation to doubt, but our tendency to drift away. Uh, They're not quite the same thing, right? Doubt tends to come with some existential angst and a wrestling with what is true or the confrontation of competing loves. Drifting away just happens. Just happens because we become distracted by other things. And so in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, if you're not a Christian in the room, the writer's arguments are relevant to you as well. See, the reasons to persevere in a given course of action, here at least, are also reasons to begin that course of action. See, the reasons Hebrews gives us to continue in the faith are also reasons to begin the life of faith if you have not already. Well, what are those reasons? This morning, at least, the the writer of Hebrews tells us really just one thing. Tells us that the Son has been exalted as the Father has testified. Therefore, listen to Him. The Son has been exalted as the Father has testified, therefore listen to Him. And that's our outline for this morning. We're going to go through those three things. The Son has been exalted, the Father has testified, therefore listen to Him. So first, the Son has been exalted. Okay, so so what, what are the reasons He gives us this morning that we ought to listen to the Gospel? Hebrews, again, gives primarily one reason this morning, and that is that Jesus in his exaltation, is seen to be superior to the angels. Now, immediately we have a problem for some in our culture. Hebrews is speaking to a people who are likely tempted to angel worship. And while there may be certain superstitious types today who are overly fixated on angels, uh, for the most part, people don't even believe in them. To say that Jesus is superior to the angels in our day sounds a bit like saying the Easter bunny is superior to unicorns, which uh, is, of course, not true, but also would be silly and frivolous. And I understand your skepticism, 
But whether we are a a superstitious angel worshiper or a modern secular skeptic, I would suggest either way, what we really need is a bigger view of Jesus. So many of us live with a small view of who Jesus is. We live with a view of of Christ as, as gentle Jesus, meek and mild, or of one of a number of great revolutionary teachers, or as a quaint but irrelevant spiritual advisor, or even a backwards first-century Jewish theologian. And of course, if that's all that Jesus is, I would say by all means reject him, ignore him, and move on to something more important. But Hebrews gives us a bigger picture, and it's to that that we now turn. In our passage, uh, we find seven things that testify to Jesus' exaltation. Seven things that give us a picture of the greatness of Jesus. And the first is his name. Uh, last week we looked at verses 1 through 3, but verse 4 is, is a continuation of the sentence that begins in verse 3. So verses 3 and 4 say of Jesus, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus has inherited, Hebrews tells us, a more excellent name than the angels. And you might think, okay, well, what is that excellent name? Uh, Some think it is the name uh, Lord, right? Jesus is Lord, according to the New Testament, right? Others think it's the name Jesus itself, because at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Uh, But in fact, Hebrews tells us what that name is in verse 5. Verse 5, he says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? Today I have begotten you. Jesus is the Son. In fact, Jesus is the Son of God in at least two distinct senses. Uh, He is God the Son, uh, the second person of the Trinity from eternity and forever. But He is also the, the second Adam. You know, Adam was created as God's Son, but He failed as a Son. He failed to be the, the spitting image of His Father, as we might say. So Jesus is the second Adam, a new man, a start to a new humanity. And he fully and perfectly lived in obedience to his Father. He always did what pleased the Father, even to the point of death on the cross. And it is in light of that obedience that the Father declares him to be Son. See, the the begetting in in, uh, verse 5 here, the writer of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 2. And the begetting in Psalm 2, that the today is not about the the beginning of the eternal Son, because He had no beginning. It's not even about the incarnation and the coming of Jesus into the world. Paul tells us in Acts 13.33 that it's about the resurrection. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, as Colossians 1.18 says. So Jesus is begotten from the, the dead and declared to be the Son. This is what Paul says in Romans 1.4, that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And this seals for us that Jesus is the, the Son the Father promised to David. And so Hebrews quotes, again, Second Samuel saying, Of a son of David, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. See, Jesus is the Son of God as the the promised Son of David who would sit on the throne forever. 
None of the angels, Hebrews says, has ever been declared God's son. Uh, Now, to be fair, the angels are sometimes in Scripture called sons of God or even just gods. But it's true that none have ever been singled out as God's unique son. But Jesus, through his resurrection from the the dead, is declared to be the son of God, the second Adam, the, the son of David, and therefore the son of God who would sit on the throne forever. So Jesus' exaltation is seen in the name he has been given in his resurrection from dead, the Son of God. Second, it's also seen in his worship, meaning the worship that he has given, according to verse 6. Verse 6 says, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Now, the the world here comes up again in chapter 2, verse 5. Uh, when the writer says, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. When Hebrews says, when he brings the firstborn into the world, again, it means not Jesus' incarnation, but his resurrection by which he was brought into the, the age to come, the world to come, as 2.5 puts it. When the God-man rose from the dead and ascended to the Father's right hand, the Father said, let all God's angels worship him. Now, now what is so fascinating about this quote is it's either from the the Septuagint of Psalm 97, verse 7, or Deuteronomy 32, 43. uh, That is the Greek version of one of those two passages. But in both cases, it, it was the Lord, Yahweh, who reigns, who is to be worshiped. So Hebrews is telling us that it is Jesus, the the God-man, who was crucified and raised, who ascended to the right hand of the Father, who is declared to be Yahweh, who reigns, and therefore is to be worshipped. And so the writer says, therefore, that the angels, right, let all God's angels worship him. Not just you and me, but the angels as well. Now, that's important because, you know, if you think about it, in in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John, you may remember, at one point is tempted to bow down to worship an angel. In fact, I think twice in the book of Revelation, he's tempted to bow down and worship an angel. And the angel says in Revelation 19.10, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. The angels are not to be worshipped by us or by anyone else. But Jesus, Jesus who is greater than the angels, is to be worshipped by them and, of course, by us as well. Jesus' greatness is seen in his name as the Son. It's seen in his worship. It's seen uh, in his reign and in his anointing. So we've already mentioned this, but Hebrews points it out explicitly in verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That that quote is from Psalm 45, and it's a psalm celebrating uh, a Davidic king. Of course, what Davidic king could ever be addressed as God? And of what Davidic king can it be said that his throne is forever? Solomon, the son of David, reigned and then died, as did every descendant of David and Solomon since. But Jesus died and rose, and so he reigns forever. Hebrews says God anointed him. Uh, God 
has anointed God with the oil of gladness. And uh, the anointing oil was used to designate someone as king. It's where we get the words Messiah and Christ, which both mean anointed one. So Jesus, for the joy set before him, Hebrews will tell us later, endured the cross. And the Father, in response to that obedience, anointed him with the oil of joy. That is, he anointed him as king above all others, which would be the source of joy and gladness for Jesus, the exalted king. And so Jesus' greatness, it's seen in his name, in his worship, in his reign, in his anointing. It's also seen in his eternity. Uh, verses 10 to 12, again, remind us that this son was declared the son in his resurrection, but he had been around a long time before that. Again, quoting verses that refer to Yahweh in the Old Testament, Hebrews reminds us that Jesus laid the foundation of the earth. As uh, John, a, a close companion of Jesus, says in John chapter 1, all things were made through him, and apart from him nothing was made that has been made. Or as Paul, who saw the risen Jesus on the Damascus Road, put it in Colossians 1, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And yet Hebrews goes even further. Uh, not, not only did the Father make all things through the Son, but they will all perish while he will remain they will all wear out, but he is the same and his years have no end. Though God the Son stepped into time and space, lived as a man in time and space, and was crucified and rose in time and space, he is not bound by time and space. He is from everlasting to everlasting. And so Hebrews will actually, uh, close to the end of the book, it will end with this striking statement in Hebrews 13, verse 8. It will say, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So we see Jesus' greatness in his name, in his worship, in his reign, in his anointing, in his eternity, and also in his victory. Though it has not yet come, it is certain, according to verse 13, we read, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand? until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father until all his enemies should be placed under his feet. Enemies uh, being placed under your feet, of course, is a symbol of victory, a symbol of triumph, a symbol that you have overcome. And yet it's important to say that, that Jesus conquers most of his enemies by making them his friends. See, how is the Father placing Jesus' enemies under his feet? Through the spread of the gospel as people learn to bow before the feet of Jesus. One day, of course, the gospel will have gone throughout the world and Jesus will return and those who respond to that gospel will be exalted with Jesus and those who have rejected it will be subdued finally, fully under his feet. See, either way, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, we're told in Scripture. The Father has promised the Son victory over the nations. There is no doubt that the Father will bring about what He has promised. We see that victory when anyone comes to submit their lives to King Jesus, and we will see that victory in fullness on the last day. So Jesus' greatness is seen in His name, in His worship, in His reign, in His anointing, His eternity, His victory, and finally in His servants. Jesus in His resurrection is declared to be the Son of God, worthy of worship, the one who reigns at the Father's right hand. But what about the angels? Well, we see in verse 7 and then again in verse 14, 
Verse 14 says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to, to inherit salvation? Angels are servants. Uh, they're servants of, of you and I, right? Servants of those who inherit the salvation that Christ has brought. They are not to be worshipped. They're not to be exalted. They are servants of the one who brought salvation to care for those who have inherited salvation. Now, this is all heady stuff in one sense as we think through who Jesus is in his exaltation as the Son who reigns forever. But here's the practical question. If this is who Jesus is, what else can possibly compete for your attention? He is superior to the angels in heaven. How much more is he superior to everything on earth that demands your attention and allegiance? How silly of us to be distracted by the goings-on of our day-to-day when God has exalted his son to sit on the throne. You know, even when we get a new president, people tend to stop what they're doing and watch his inauguration. People still talk about the coronation of Queen Elizabeth 67 years later. When someone comes into power, life changes under their rule. You, you tend to take notice. Well, there is a greater king who has begun to reign, and life will never be the same again. But you still might say, okay, uh, fine, I hear what you're saying, but how do I know? I mean, it's all well and good to say that Jesus is superior to angels, but I'm not so sure, again, that I even believe in angels, much less Jesus. How do I know that the Son has been exalted? How do I know that He has begun to reign That brings us to our next point. The Son has been exalted as the Father has testified. How do I know is, of course, the perennial question of uh, skeptics. And it's not a bad question. There are always hucksters and snake oil salesmen who want to take you in. So a little skepticism is a good thing. Uh, The truth is that many skeptics are actually not as uh, skeptical as they need to be. In fact, uh, it's easy to become dogmatic in our skepticism. To be honest skeptics, of course, we need to be skeptical even about our skepticism. Or as others have put it, we need to doubt even our doubts. And when we begin to be skeptical about our skepticism and to doubt our doubts, a crack is opened up and room is made for us to begin to listen. To listen to the testimony of the Father about the exaltation of the Son. The Father has testified to the exaltation of the Son, and that in at least four ways seen here in Hebrews. One, through the prophets who predicted the exaltation of Christ. Second, through the Son himself who declares the exaltation of Christ. Third, through the apostles who attested to that exaltation. And fourth, through the Spirit who confirmed it. So first, through the prophets who predicted the exaltation of Jesus. Uh, We've just looked at at verses 5 through 13, and verses 5 through 13 are uh, this litany of Old Testament texts predicting the exaltation of the Son of God. And and as you read through the Old Testament, you find God has a plan to place a son of Adam on the throne who will also be a son of Abraham and a son of David and even the Son of God. This has been God's plan and purpose all along as the prophets predicted. And so it has come to pass in Jesus. The Father has testified to what he would do ahead of time as he predicted it in the prophets. The Father has also testified through the Son himself. Hebrews moves from the Old Testament study in, in the chapter 1 to exhortation in chapter 2. 
And in so doing, Hebrews again confirms the validity of the message of the gospel. Look at chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. The writer says, uh, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. First, he says the message was declared at first by the Lord, that is, by Jesus. And this is one of those places where the medium really is the message. Right? When the writer of Hebrews talks about God speaking to us by his Son, he doesn't simply mean the words of Jesus, but the actions of Jesus. Jesus' actions, which speak louder than words about the intention of the Father for his people. Jesus has come and accomplished what the prophets predicted. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead on the third day. He ascended into heaven and is now seated at the Father's right hand. And and Jesus did say this, of course. He, He said that this is what he would do. He said it to his disciples in Matthew 17. He said, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus said it to the Jewish court that put him to trial in Matthew 26. He said, I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus certainly spoke of his suffering, of his resurrection, and of his exaltation to the Father's right hand. He spoke of those things, but then he actually did it. He went to the cross. He bore sin. He rose from the dead, and he ascended to the Father. But again, you ask, okay, you say that, but how, how do we know? The Father has testified to the exaltation of the Son through the prophets who predicted it, through the Son who, who lived it out, and then through the apostles who attested the exaltation of Jesus. You know, too often as Christians, we, we neglect or distort the importance of the apostles. The, the role of the apostles is pretty clear in Scripture. They were eyewitnesses of the resurrection, they bore eyewitness testimony to the risen Jesus. See, Jesus rose from the dead. How do we know that Jesus rose from the dead? Well, because people saw him risen from the dead. And they bore witness, right? As in a court of law, right? They gave eyewitness testimony to what they saw and heard. Right? It's true that, that you have not seen Jesus risen from the dead, and I have not seen Jesus risen from the dead, but there are lots of things that you and I have not seen, but we believe based on the eyewitness testimony of others. God has not left us without those who bore witness. First uh, John, uh, the, the book of First John starts out like this, "...that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes." which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that life was manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Or 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 16 to 19 say this. uh, Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him uh, from uh, by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice, voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word made more fully confirmed 
to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Now, when Peter says we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, he means that the prophecies of the Old Testament are made more sure because of their fulfillment in Jesus, witnessed to by the apostles. Jesus has come and done what God said he would come and do, and the apostles saw that and bore witness to that, both in their words and later in their writings. The Father has testified to the exaltation of the Son through the prophets, through the Son, through the apostles, and through the Spirit. Not only did the apostles attest to what they saw and heard, but God also bore witness, according to verse 4, by signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Spirit. Miraculous works done first by Jesus and then later by the apostles themselves were the work of the Father by the Spirit, attesting to the truthfulness of their message. Now, many people wonder and ask, well, well, why are there no signs and wonders today, right? Where are the signs and wonders now? Where are my signs and wonders, right? If, if only God would show me some miracle, then I too would believe. Well, Scripture actually says that's not true. Um, as much as we would like to believe that the problem of our unbelief is due to lack of evidence, Scripture says it's due to the hardness of our hearts, so we read in Luke 16, 31, in, in a story uh, of Jesus, Jesus says, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The problem is never lack of evidence. It's what's going on in my heart. Why am I unwilling to believe the testimony that God has given? And yet, nevertheless, we're right to ask, well, why not today? And the answer is that signs and wonders were attested to God's, attested to God's work in Christ. God's work is now complete, right? Jesus has risen and now reigns, and the signs and wonders attested to the eyewitnesses who bore witness to what they saw to demonstrate that their witness was true. God adding his testimony to theirs so that everything might be attested by two or three witnesses. Well, I don't have any eyewitness testimony to give you, and so I don't have miracles to perform, That doesn't mean that God can't or never does do miraculous things. He can and on occasion may do so. But Hebrews' point is the definitive testimony that God has given in the past through the apostles and how God bore witness to the truth of their message through the miraculous work of the Spirit. Now the Spirit is still active, of course, not through signs and wonders, but through other gifts, gifts that He gives to members of the body, gifts of both words and deeds, abilities given by the Spirit to speak and serve for the good of others. And as we use our gifts in the body to love and serve one another, that too bears witness to the truth of what we have to say. As Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That is, if you serve one another in word and deed in the power of the Spirit. So the Son has been exalted. The Father has testified to that. Therefore, listen to Him. You know, when great people speak, we we ought to listen, right? This is why the the works of great thinkers throughout history are still read today. Uh, We intuitively recognize that the thoughts of great men and women are worth our time and attention. Well, why should we listen to the gospel? There are lots of reasons, of course. The gospel is, is the solution to all the problems of human life. 
uh, both interpersonal problems and interpersonal problems, both uh, social and economic and ethnic tensions, right? If we would listen to the gospel, if we would listen to what God has said to us in his son, every aspect of life and society would be brought to the feet of Jesus, and life as we know it would be transformed. And this is happening and will happen on the last day. It's happening as, as individuals come to know Christ and submit their lives to him And it will happen on the last day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess. But a large portion, and so a large portion of of the why, of why should we listen, is because it's in our best interest to do so. As we submit to the feet of Jesus, and he begins to transform our lives and make us new. But so far this morning, we've really just seen two other reasons in Hebrews. Why should we listen to the message of Jesus? Well, because of the greatness of the speaker, Jesus, And because of the abundance of the testimony to the truthfulness of his message. Or because the Son has been exalted and the Father has spoken. Uh, But the writer gives us still two more reasons briefly. Uh, First, Hebrews argues, makes this argument from the lesser to the greater. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 say, uh, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape? If we neglect such a great salvation. See, a message that came through angels is is incredible. And the law of Moses was said to have come through angels. That's not quite clear in the Old Testament, but the New Testament mentions it multiple times. And the point is always, as amazing as that was, we have an even greater message. A message given not through angels, but through the Son. The Son. The people are held accountable for listening to the message declared by angels, the law. How much more will we be held accountable for listening to the gospel, the message that God has given to us through his son? But really, this whole argument comes down to one thing, right? Uh, Here in Hebrews 1 and 2, it's the the danger of drift, right? The danger that Hebrews is addressing here is not, not conscious rebellion against Christ. It's not radical abandonment of the faith. One writer said, defection here is not considered so much a deliberate thing, but a careless one, drifting. The danger here considered is not not arguing against the gospel, but simply going with the flow of the world. The same writer goes on to say, drifting perhaps is the most common way in which people depart from the church. How many show up less and less to Christian gatherings until one day you realize that they have stopped coming altogether? You see, here, here is the danger Here is why we need to come back to the gospel again and again. If we are not constantly returning to Scripture, we will drift into human-centric thinking. Uh, We will drift into thinking bounded by the realities of time and space. We will drift into malnourished imaginations that cannot conceive of anything more, anything beyond, anything bigger or more beautiful than what this world has to offer. We will begin to adopt the thinking of the culture around us. It will be subtle at first. It's a drift. But we will drift from the truths of Scripture to the speculations of late-night conversations to the suppositions of an unbelieving culture and ultimately to the lies of the evil one. Friends, don't allow yourselves to drift away. Listen to Jesus. Cling to the gospel. Pay close attention to the message of grace. Remind yourselves of it again and again. Steep yourselves in the scriptures. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He rose from the dead on the third day. He is reigning in heaven. 
that we might find for the forgiveness of sins, help in times of trouble, and the hope of resurrection life on the last day. Don't drift off, but listen to Him. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that You would give us faith in Your Son, Jesus, that we would see Him in all of His glory, that we would marvel at His work, that we would rejoice in what He has done in His death, in His resurrection, in His ascension to Your right hand, that we would rejoice in that and rest in that, but that we would not, uh, that we would not uh, forget that message and lay it aside and move on to other things, but that we would cling to it. Help us, Father, by Your Spirit, to cling to the message of the Gospel with all our hearts, that we might find our rest and hope in Jesus. Amen.